0: This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by Ceres, maker of indoor trainers, power meters, and bike racks. It's a company of cyclists, making products they themselves want to use. Products like the Cyclops H2 and M2 Smart Trainers. The H2 and M2 are the second generation of the Hammer and Magnus indoor trainers, with better power accuracy and a more realistic ride feel if you pair them with Ruby or Zwift training software. There's also a new headless mode that allows you to train without connecting to a computer. Not only that, but it basically looks like the trainer version of a stealth bomber. But Ceres isn't just about state-of-the-art technology. Since 2012, Ceres has also partnered with World Bicycle Relief, whose mission is to help those in need by eliminating transportation barriers. Two things that are really important for us are our kids and bikes. We spend a lot of our energy uh, trying to figure out how to help both. This is Chris Fortune, co-founder of Saris. Recently, Chris launched a fundraising campaign that raised enough money for World Bicycle Relief to build over 240 Buffalo bikes, specially designed bicycles that are built to handle big loads and tough roads. Chris and his son went to Zambia to help hand them out. The target um, for us was girls that are traveling long distance to schools and how do we provide them transportation via the bike to get home from home to school in a way that gives them a better opportunity. With the help of partners like Ceris, World Bicycle Relief has built thousands of Buffalo bikes. In Zambia alone, they're donating four thousand of them. You know the
1: images still stay with me, you know how much opportunity there is still
0: to help. This winter, Saris is part of the Ride On for World Bicycle Relief, presented by Zwift, a global 24-hour virtual fundraising ride. But if you want to participate, you'll need a smart trainer. And for that, Saris has you covered. Details at worldbicyclerelief.org. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the Science of Survival. Back when we first started working on this wildfire series, we knew that we were going to throw a lot of numbers at you and talk about fire drought and burned acres and climate change. But we also talked about trying to get at the way that it feels to be living in this current moment when wildfires are knocking at the door every summer and the fire season lasts 12 months of the year in some places when you basically never know when something might happen. Last year, there was a guy in Oregon who lost his house on the outskirts of Portland and his winery in Northern California, a few weeks apart. And then the house that my brother-in-law was renting, near Mendocino, California, burned down after some power lines sparked on the ground. He moved to a new place, and then this summer, while we were working on this series, his new place burned down too. Before any of that happened, though, back when we first started coming up with ideas for the series, I asked a friend of mine, Joseph Jordan, who writes fiction, how he thinks about wildfires, and if he might write something about what it's like to live with the threat of fire every day. And he said he'd think about it. And then he sent me this.
1: The summer after my brother's funeral, there's a lightning storm west of town, out past the twin hillocks they call the Two Bulls. I'm sitting in the garage with a box of his things, a poster, a sci-fi novel, a textbook, a black and white composition notebook that he'd been carrying around before he died. I've been staring at the notebook for who knows how long, afraid to open it, when thunder booms down the alley and through the open garage door. There's no rain, but an eerie green light glows in the clouds overhead. Another bolt strikes beyond the bulls. I've gotten better at recognizing when bad things begin. I've missed their beginnings before. I missed how badly the accident had hurt him, for one. Two springs ago, my brother was climbing a glacier in Alberta. It was an unseasonably warm day in a string of such days, and the ice was not strong. He said he planted his axe in a spot he thought was sturdy. But when he went to lift himself, a whole sheath of ice detached from the glacier and sent him skidding towards a crevasse. His climbing partner above somehow managed to steady the line, but my brother went over the lip before he came to a slashing, wrenching halt. I was so surprised I didn't die that I didn't know I was hurt, he said later. I never asked him why he'd gone out that day when he knew conditions were bad. I didn't think to. He was crazy, my brother. One time he slept outside in a blizzard just to see if the snow would insulate him from the cold. Another time he bet me he could lose five pounds in one day and spent an entire afternoon locked in his car with two sweatshirts on and the heat blowing. Once he attempted suicide with a gas stove and was rescued when our dad smelled something strange coming from his bedroom. He was doing crazy shit all the time. It's a bad fire season this year. It's a bad fire season every year anymore. Once upon a time, fires burned through the west regularly, helping tame the woods. But then European settlers came and started putting them out. This left more fuel on the ground, so they burned hotter and got bigger. So we put them out with more gusto. This went on for decades, and now the fires sometimes burn too big and too hot to be put out at all. I leave the garage and go outside. Smoke gathers in the distance, just visible from the sidewalk, two spindly fingers reaching toward the sky in a sort of sinister peace sign. I decide it's time to go. My brother had to be airlifted to a hospital in Edmonton. When he first got home, he told his wife, who told me, that he was treated for hypothermia and released, but he walked with a limp and could no longer lift his children. He said he was thinking about quitting climbing. Finally, it emerged that he'd ruptured a disc in his back. I thought it was strange that he would hide something like that, but his wife didn't. It's his body, she said, and I thought I understood. His black moods got stronger. By last summer, he'd grown cagey and paranoid. We went for an easy hike out by Green Lakes, the only kind of hike he was capable of anymore. He was talking sourly about his wife, who he said was mean unfeeling and depressive, when a little boy came tumbling out of a campground as we trudged by, brandishing a toy bow and plastic arrow with a sucker on its end. Stick him up, he shouted. Give me five dollars. I laughed, but my brother erupted. Get out of here, he yelled. Our uncle's a cop. This wasn't true, but it didn't matter. He kept yelling, and I had to drag him away as the kid ran off in terror. My car's in the shop, so I load a few clothes and photos into a backpack. For a long moment, I stare at my brother's composition book, the one I can't seem to open. Then I tuck it under my arm and leave. My plan is to walk to my dad's house down by the river. No one I know can remember a fire ever getting that far into town. My pack is heavy. The walk is slow. A kid sticks her head out the window of a passing minivan. Hello, she shouts, and I watch her go waving away, hair flying and golden in the summer sun. After a couple of blocks, I open the composition book, feeling as though its insides might burst into flames. Instead, I find only my brother's boyish handwriting in red ink. Some of the phrases are familiar from the early stages of his breakdown. God is a fractal, he wrote. I am a fractal. He wrote of fire and mountains and climate change. He said he knew a way to transcend the apocalypse. And after that, it was blank. Last Christmas, my brother's family flew over the mountain so we could be with our dad. Our stepmother had recently left him, and in the months since, he had visibly aged. At the time, I was far more worried about him than my brother. When I picked them up from the airport, they seemed the most joyous crew I could have imagined. The girls wore spangled elf hats. His wife had a giant bag full of boxes on her arm. Before I could even say hello, my brother wrapped me in a huge hug, pinning my arms to my sides. I asked him how he was. Wonderful, he said. Then he said it again. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. That night, my brother and I got tremendously drunk. We started at a tavern where we drank bourbon and talked music and philosophy and religion. His mind burned with thoughts about God. He told me he had been seeing a numinous light around people he loved. He said he believed God was protecting us from something. This thing was big and dark, but we were safe in the light. The light would shine on us all. The fire must be growing. The light coming from two bulls is amber, thick and unnatural. It creeps down the hillside like some lumbering creature. I feel I'm being hunted. I keep expecting an evacuation notice, something official, acknowledging the mess we're in. I wander into a coffee shop. The tables are dotted with people on laptops, headphones jacked into their ears. As I wait, I ask the barista if she's at all worried about the fire. You must be new here, she says. These fires happen all the time. But it's awfully close, I say. Somebody's working on it, she says. And then she says again, You must be new here. I wanna scream. I'm not new at all, I wanna say. I've been here my whole life. I've seen the fire. It's coming fast from the west. But I don't scream. I take my coffee and I leave. After Christmas, my brother and his family went home. About a week later, I found myself up in the city with spare time on my hands, so I thought I would stop by their house. I found him moving around in bare feet, singing to himself. He hugged me hello and then said, wait, I have something for you, and scurried upstairs. I went into the kitchen and found the girls there, sitting cross-legged on the floor with their knees touching. An open jar of grape jelly lay on the floor between them. They were painting one another's faces with it. Dad made us lunch, they said, in unison. I wrested the jelly from them and made a pair of sandwiches, no crust, cut on the diagonal. I set the girls at the kitchen table and fed them. I watched them to see if they had noticed anything unusual going on, that they were the same as always. It occurred to me that maybe this wasn't all that unusual anymore. A moment later, my brother came bounding down the stairs with a legal pad in his hand. He caught me by the sleeve and dragged me into the living room where he thrust the legal pad toward me. I have figured out the theory of relativity of God. He said, I need you to write it down. I stared at him for a good long while. He just smiled. That night, I wrote an email to his wife. Hey, I wrote. Does he seem different to you? She wrote back one word. Yes. When I came back the next morning, I found him on his knees shirtless before his bedroom door, soaked with rain or sweat or something. The door was closed and he was screaming through it. I'm not sick, he yelled. I'm not going to a hospital. I said his name. He turned and looked right at me. He squinted as though trying to recognize a stranger through a pall of smoke. Through the door, I heard his wife yell my name over the cries of the girls. I looked at my brother. He was pounding the wall with his fists. He was much bigger than me, had been since high school. For the first time in my life, I was scared of him. I backed out of the hallway and called the police. Two days later, I visited him in the hospital. Ghostly nurses trailed across pale linoleum as a forgotten television preached into an empty lounge. I found him sitting in a tiny room, dressed in full scrubs and slippers, calmer but still smoldering. You seem much more yourself, I said, peeling off my coat. On a whiteboard behind his head, in his wife's handwriting, were the words, Take your medicine. I love you. I feel much more myself, he said, but, but what, I said. But when you took off your jacket, I saw sparks showering down your arms. Just as I arrive at my dad's house, a roar comes overhead. I look up to see a helicopter dangling a giant metal scoop, shedding droplets of water that tumble down on me like rain. It pounds off toward the two bulls, but the scoop opens and releases its payload long before it gets there. The fire couldn't be much more than a couple miles away now. A minute later, I find my dad prowling back and forth on the back porch with a cup of coffee in his hand. Staring at the smoke, creeping steadily forward. I've never seen one so close to town before, he says. He's 73 years old. He was born here. There are fires every year. What should we do, I say. What can we do, he says. We stand there together, afraid. When my brother was released from the hospital, I remember thinking... Thank God we caught it in time. I remember he called me on my birthday, just three months after he was committed, and he sounded chipper. There was no more talk of God. Instead, he read to me from the labels of his various pill bottles. Lithium, haloperidol, benzodiazepine. He had an app on his phone that sounded an alarm when it was time for each one, he said. He didn't love the side effects, but all in all, it made him feel something close to normal. How does your back feel, I asked him. I'll never climb again, he said, or ski. I think about that sometimes. After a long silence, I said, and how are the girls? And there was another long silence before he said, honestly, I think they're a little scared of me now. At some point, my dad suggests we should drive up to Quigley Butte. On a clear day, you can see all up and down the spine of the mountains to the west from there. Today, we get there and the air is choked with brown fog. A couple of dozen other people have had the same idea as us. Most of them stand at the western lip of the tarmac that surrounds the monument, peering into the fire. A skinny yellow dog wanders from person to person in search of attention. The sun is relentless. There's not a scrap of shade up here. When we take our place on the edge of the tarmac, My dad and I stare into the distance for a long time. I feel a great silence inside me. Not peace or restfulness. The numb silence of being unable to sleep. The terrible silence of a depopulated landscape. From where we stand, we can see a big building well inside the city limits. A dormitory at the college, raging with flames. We can't see fire trucks or firefighters, but their sirens scream across the sky. Holy moly, my dad says. And that's when we hear the first explosion. I was in the city when my brother's wife, Miranda, called. I was at a little bar on Clinton Street with a couple of old friends I hadn't seen in years. I used to ignore her calls most of the time in those days. There was no particular reason for me to answer that evening other than that I was out on the sidewalk smoking and my friends who didn't smoke were back inside. So I picked up. I don't remember the cab ride from the bar to my brother's house. I do remember that I kept feeling her words in the back of my head, like a stone in my shoe. I think he killed himself, she said. Did that mean he wasn't dead? Or did it mean that she didn't know how it happened? I think he killed himself. Maybe he just disappeared. He was prone to that sort of thing. I think he killed himself. Their block was a circus of flashing lights and cops and rubbernecking neighbors. There was an ambulance on the lawn. Leaning against the ambulance, draped in a quilt, was Miranda. The girls were wrapped together at her knees. One of them was sucking the other's thumb. When I approached, Miranda fell on me and squeezed hard. What happened? I said. News sweeps through the crowd atop the butte. They're dynamiting houses to create a firebreak. As the booms sound in the distance, I trace this news to its origin: a rough-looking guy, the bad sunburn, and a mesh-back baseball cap that reads Lachera County Fire and Rescue. He holds a walkie-talkie to his lips and stares out at the fire with a sense of purpose that I normally would be loath to disturb. But the image of my house exploding pushes me on. Excuse me, I say, but I heard a rumor. He turns to me and says, it's true. What's true? The governor declared a state of emergency and gave us the okay to eliminate some residences in order to halt the progress of the conflagration. I stare at him. You mean they're really blowing up people's houses? Just then, the sound of another explosion rockets across the landscape. I flinch. The fire and rescue man doesn't. He says, it's an old technique, but it works sometimes. The London fire, the great Baltimore fire of 04. 2004, 1904, will they blow up my house? I really couldn't say. What happened to my brother wasn't an accident. I'm not sure it would matter if it was. A suicidal person who was killed in an accident is still gone. doesn't matter if a wildfire starts because of lightning or fireworks or a dropped cigarette. It was some days before a rainstorm blew down from Alaska and reduced the fire to smoldering embers, but by then my entire neighborhood had burned out or been blown up. You could smell it all over town, not just wood smoke. But the terrible acrid smell of burnt fiberglass and melted plastic. That smell filled my nose the day I snuck in through a barrier that had been erected by the state police and went back to find my house. All that remained of it was its northern wall, blackened with soot and charred around its edges. My books, my photographs, my furniture and keepsakes, gone. I stood on the concrete apron that had once been my front porch and looked in through what had once been my doorway. tried to feel something since the day my brother killed himself i had felt numb arid now i felt burnt to the bone after a normal forest fire the soil recovers it's healthier rich with new nutrients more sunlight pours through the trees and the ones that remain have room to grow But sometimes, when the conditions align, the fire burns too hot. It'll sterilize the soil and leave behind a blank scar on the landscape. There's no way to know which kind of fire you have on your hands until much later, when things either grow back or they don't. Before he was married, my brother lived here with me for a few years. They were good years. We were young and we drank too much and we stayed up late and spent our weekends skittering over the nearby mountains like ants across a hot rock. We had girls over and smoked pot and had the neighbors call the police on us a couple of times. He was routinely unemployed and rarely paid even the nominal rent he'd agreed to when he moved in. Maybe I should have noticed how hot he burned, but I didn't. There was just so much of him. Being close to him made you feel good. I sat down on the charred concrete and tried to remember him. We used to have terrible fights sometimes when we lived together. I forgot about that. The reason he so rarely worked is that some weeks he wouldn't get out of bed. He would be difficult in those times, mean and angry. But then it would blow over and he would pick himself back up. Until the time when he didn't. I can remember him holding a lit match in his hand a long wooden match made for barbecues and campfires and gazing into the flame for a long time this was so long ago that we might have been children i sat across from him and stared into the flame too trying to see whatever it was that he was seeing and then all at once he put his hand over it and extinguished it with his bare palm it didn't seem to hurt him how did you do that i said The trick, he said, is being hotter than the fire.
0: That's Joseph Jordan. He's a writer in Bend, Oregon. This piece was produced and edited by me, Peter Frickwright, and Robbie Carver, with music and sound design by Robbie. This episode of the Science of Survival is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance in wildfires. or at sloan.org. The Outside Podcast is a production of Outside Magazine and PRX.